Good morning. morning. What a glorious day this is. To the rector, Reverend Matt Hyde, thank you for this invitation. Thank you for honoring me on this special occasion. To the very Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas, thank you for honoring us with your presence. And to the congregation, I rise with humility today moved by your welcome and the works of this congregation. I am awed by how and how fully you answer our shared call to faith, our shared call to love. Our faith challenges us to do good and to seek justice, to rebuke the oppressor, and relieve the oppressed, to love yourself, your neighbor as yourself. For the way we treat the least among us, the immigrant, the poor, the vulnerable, that is the way we treat the greatest. Our faith teaches us that righteousness in our hearts is necessary, but it is not sufficient. That we must use our hands no matter how tired, to build a bigger table, to bend the universe's moral arc with all the might we can muster. It teaches us that in the end, three things remain, faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. At the heart of our faith, then, is the promise of the greatest love, dignity. At the heart of our faith is the dignity that all people deserve, because we are all worthy, because we are all brothers and sisters in the eyes of our Creator. The dignity that we must demand for and deliver to all of our neighbors because we are all tied up in that single garment of destiny, because my liberation is bound up with yours, as yours is with mine. And yet, let us look around this country, this world. We have sown the wind, and we now reap the whirlwind. One pandemic may be in retreat in some places, but there are other pandemics that remain all too clear and all too present. We suffer from pandemics of prejudice, bias and authoritarianism, resentment and grievance, narcissism and mendacity, inequality and impunity, annihilism that poisons our great land. We suffer from cancers on our democracy and on our economic system, from a diseased climate that is pushing our life-sustaining ecosystems to the brink of collapse. And in turn, the supply of human dignity we need remains far too low, and the demand for it seems too high. Yes, we are all endowed with an inalienable right to dignity. From our sacred and civic faith 
this much should be self-evident. But our history teaches that self-evident is not the same as self-actualizing, that inalienable is not inevitable. At the turn of the last century, it was a Chicago muckraking journalist and humorist, a different kind of apostle, who coined that most illustrative phrase, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. On this wonderful, somewhat cloudy autumn morning here, in this sacred place, I ask you to reflect on this. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. I ask you to reflect on the difference, the distance even between the two. Afflicting the comfortable is about recognizing the inequalities that make generosity and charity both necessary and possible. Racism, caste, decades of Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, greed is good, excess. Afflicting the comfortable is about reckoning with the ways in which we ourselves, right here, right now, benefit from the very systems that can cause harm to our neighbors. Reckoning with vast disparities in access and agency, in resources, in respect, in voice, and in value. And afflicting the comfortable is about rectifying the deep inequalities that can deceive and blind us to our privileges and our advantages. It requires resetting the cycles of privilege built into our laws, our customs, our behaviors, our tax code, our legacy admissions, our entitlement that we should be at the front of every line. Recognizing, reckoning with, rectifying inequality, these ideas have special resonance here at this magnificent church. Three decades ago, I entered the doors of Church of the Heavenly Rest for the very first time. I was new to the city. I was trying, like many new young New Yorkers, to find my place in this dynamic, complicated metropolis called New York. And for a small country boy like me, this was a challenge. But on Monday nights after work, I would volunteer in the church's outreach ministry. Alongside many dedicated members of this congregation, I helped care for a few dozen men without homes of their own who found food and shelter within these doors. That I remember those nights so clearly all these years later is a testament to your tradition of service which has inspired so many of us to serve our neighbors in and through the greatest love. When your neighbors are hungry, you feed them with grace-to-go meals. When the incarcerated return, you greet them with open arms, providing job training and hospitality. When city kids head back to school each fall, this congregation prepares backpacks full of supplies so that the lack of resources is just a little less of a barrier to their academic success. I also feel 
another, more complicated connection to this place and its history because, the, because of the ground beneath our very feet, literally. We worship this morning just across the street from the opulent home of the American industrialist Andrew Carnegie, now the Cooper Hewitt Museum of Design, and on the land that Carnegie's wife sold to this church's forebearers nearly 100 years ago. Now, I don't have to tell this crowd that while charity has its genesis in our faith tradition, modern American philanthropy traces its beginnings to 1889, the height of the Gilded Age, when Andrew Carnegie penned his much-referenced essay, The Gospel of Wealth. Now, informed by his Presbyterian tradition and in the face of rampant inequality, Carnegie proposed a bold idea. The wealthy, he argued, should freely give from their gains to aid the masses. So throughout the 20th century, the field of institutional philanthropy emerged and flourished in the pattern of Carnegie's mold. Iconic American families, Rockefeller, Morgan, Ford, Mellon to Gates and Bloomberg endowed and expanded an extraordinary array of organizations that lifted lives and livelihoods around the world. And by and large, their work has been a force for good. Their collective impact, material and significant. At the same time though, Something about the old narrative of generosity and giving back should make us uneasy. Something about Carnegie's gospel should make us uncomfortable, especially as people of faith. Because as I see it, we cannot hide from the central contradiction built into our giving. We are creatures of our economic system's unequal benefits, and yet we are charged with addressing its inherent history of compounding the privilege of the already privileged and compounding the disadvantage of the already disadvantaged. This tension may be particularly today during a new Gilded Age. But to paraphrase a former American president, this is a moral issue as old as the scriptures and as clear as the Constitution. It was exactly six decades ago, between the summer of 1962 and the spring of 1963, that a 30-something-year-old pastor in Atlanta, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., prepared a series of sermons that would become his seminal work. This was before the boycotts and the bombings in Birmingham, before the March on Washington, before Freedom Summer or Bloody Sunday. Dr. King first articulated many of his most enduring calls to conscience in a manuscript called Strength to Love. He actually drafted much of it during long evenings in jails in Alabama and Mississippi. 
In these pages, he declared that hate cannot drive out hate because only love can do that. He insisted that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of controversy. And among these reflections, Dr. King challenged the origins and objectives of philanthropy as we practiced it in America. He wrote, and I quote, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice that make philanthropy necessary. So what Dr. King was saying was that it's time for philanthropy to get uncomfortable. And this passage rattles me every single time I read it because he is saying that philanthropy, kindness, generosity, charity, comforting the afflicted, all of this is well and all of it is good. But he's also saying that good is not good enough. Not good enough to guarantee dignity for all. The words in that Pledge of Allegiance to America that we learned as children. So to ensure dignity, we must also afflict the comfortable, including and especially ourselves. You see, the subject of my generosity is me, but the object of justice is the interests and the needs of others. Generosity is about giving something back. Justice is about possibly giving something up. And at the church of the heavenly rest, you know this too intuitively. Because yes, you house the homeless and you feed the hungry, but you also fight for public policy to ensure that everyone can live and work with dignity. Yes, you provide housing and job training to the formerly incarcerated, but you also shine a light. You shine a light on the suffocating racism built into our criminal justice system. And furthermore, the ways that police practices can harm people in poor, low-income neighborhoods while helping people in higher-income, wealthier neighborhoods. Yes, you give backpacks full of school supplies, but you also advocate for the kind of education that teaches our full history, the paradox of our greatness, but our pain and our privilege. And your leadership in this regard, and so many others, points to a common set of obligations. You show us that answering the call to love requires improving the systems and structures that shape our society. That we embrace a new gospel defined by timeless terms and tenets. Answering the call to love requires that we engage with the root causes 
of our most urgent crises, not just the immediate consequences, even when those root causes implicate us. That we trust the people and communities most proximate to the problems we wish to solve, that we value their lived experience just as much as established, credentialed expertise. Yes, answering the call to love requires moral leadership and moral courage, that we fix our eyes over the horizon beyond the next earnings report or the next election and toward a long-term vision for a more inclusive, just society. And yes, answering the call to love requires that we step away from the extremes and from the edge, away from the sanctimony and certitude, that we listen with curiosity and openness and empathy, with tolerance, that we extend the presumption of grace and the benefit of the doubt. Like on that steep 17-mile road from Jericho to Jerusalem, the path to transcendence is indeed an uphill climb, an ascent from truth to forgiveness to reconciliation. During the final days of Dr. King's life, he penned what he called a testament of hope. And written during a season of doubt at a time when Dr. King was feeling depressed and dejected, this epistle was one of his very last. He observed then, and I quote, it is not easy to describe crises so profound that they have caused the most powerful nation in the world to stagger in confusion and bewilderment. I think we all today can identify. These days, one could be forgiven for feeling confused and bewildered, for feeling that we are staggering along, suffering one blow after another. But in that reflection, Dr. King also reminded us the good news that human beings have the capacity to do right as well as wrong. He reminded us that history is a path upward, not downward. And this is why he said, I am an optimist. Let us give our own testament, our own testament of hope. Like all faith, our faith is tested. It will be tested again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. But let us embrace, let us embrace the radical optimism that our faith demands of us, that we shall overcome, that through our triumphs and through our defeats, two steps forward, one step back, we will continue our ascent up that road. From Jericho to Jerusalem, from the inequalities that deny and diminish and divide and disenfranchise toward the fullest, fullest measure of justice 
equality for all people. Let us work with ambition, but with humility, with righteousness, but not self-righteousness, with moral leadership that affords space for nuance and complexity and compromise to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And in all things, in all things, let us do good and let us seek justice, rebuke the oppressor and relieve the oppressed. Let us answer that call to love with dignity for all. And let us say amen. Thank you.